Hey, 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 y'all, just real quick before we play this episode. But if you're considering applying for the 2025, oh my gosh, 2025 cohort of Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program for professionals who support and work with parents, I want you to head over to robingobel.com slash being with right now and get your name on the waiting list. We're going to do applications and registration a little differently this year because of the already overwhelming interest in the 2025 cohort. So we're going to open applications up first only to folks on the waiting list. That means in order to be one of our early applicants, we need you to sign up on that waiting list before June 25th. RobinGobel.com slash being with, and I'll get that link down in the show notes as well. Alrighty, here's the episode. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Parenting After Trauma podcast. It's me, your host, Robin Goebel. Today starts a three-episode series on neuroimmune disorders and big baffling behaviors. If you're not sure if neuroimmune disorders is something that applies to your family, I encourage you to keep listening anyway. I have some pretty special things planned for the next couple episodes, And what I've come to realize is that there are a lot of causes to big baffling behaviors, trauma and neurodiversity, just to name a few. And yes, neuroimmune disorders, regardless of the cause of these behaviors, there are a lot of overlapping features. So I think anyone tuning into this podcast will really benefit from this series, even if your situation has nothing to do with a neuroimmune disorder. I first started learning about neuroimmune disorders and their impact on the nervous system and behaviors probably like six or seven years ago, not that long ago. And if you aren't sure what a neuroimmune disorder is, don't worry, just keep listening. Today's guest will explain all of that. So yeah, six or seven years ago, I probably was maybe some of the first times I'd started hearing words like pans or pandas. And I really didn't know what that was. I wasn't using the word neuroimmune disorder. Um, I learned just enough to ask a couple really basic questions in my intake sessions to know if it might be appropriate to refer a family for assessments for a neuroimmune disorder. But really, that's it. Like, I learned almost nothing. It was on my list of things to really learn more about and explore further after I closed my practice in Austin in 2019 and moved to Michigan. I really wanted to learn so much more about neuroimmune disorders like PANS, so pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. I I just sort of had this feeling that it was actually a big contributor to the baffling behaviors and the families that I saw and a contributor that was still largely unknown and very hard to get assessed for, let alone any treatment for. So I thought, you know, we'd move and I'd have all this like free time and I could dive into learning something new, which of course did not happen at all. Mostly just because I was just tired when we moved. I really didn't do any new learning except maybe like where the cool local hiking trails were. And how to boat on big open water like Lake Michigan, which was very fabulous learning. But I did not sit down and learn about neuroimmune disorders. 
However, as the months progressed here in our new life, I came face to face with having no choice but to learn completely trial by fire about neuroimmune disorders when my husband was diagnosed with one. I remember looking at his labs, understanding them just enough to kind of decode just some of them and thinking to myself like, huh, this sounds a lot like pants, except he's a grown-up and pants has the word pediatric in it, right? Again, I knew nothing hardly at all at that point. And as it turns out, neuroimmune disorders certainly don't have an age limit. And we were thrust into now, now I'm kind of, we're on the back end of it. Life is still challenging, but so much progress has been made, which is what's allowing me to even record these episodes and talk to you about it. But, you know, when it all first started happening, I mean, we were just thrust into a absolutely terrifying and overwhelming world of an under-researched, underfunded, and extremely complicated, serious medical condition that for a long time stole my husband from me. There were time periods where every single day, probably multiple times a day, I thought to myself, okay, this is why I do what I do. My career and like ferociously, somewhat obsessively studying the brain, studying the nervous system, working with kids with complex trauma, vulnerable nervous systems and baffling behaviors prepared me for the experience of having a family member with a serious neuroimmune disorder. It prepared me to tenaciously work to see beneath behavior. It prepared me to not take behavior personally. And when I say it prepared me to tenaciously work to see beneath the behavior and not take it personally, I mean like some of the time. I am as human as everyone else. And sometimes it was all just too much. And I lost sight of it. I couldn't see it. But I was thankfully always able to come back to this is a behavioral symptom symptom of a nervous system brain-based serious illness and just worked hard to stay anchored in these are symptoms these are symptoms these are symptoms this is not who my husband really is right so my history, my, my professional history of being so fiercely committed to learning about the brain, understanding the nervous system. I mean, it's maybe in some ways like the primary way, reason we've gotten through the last couple of years. It's allowed me to always return to hope. Because y'all, it turns out regulated, connected husbands who feel safe behave well. And for a very, very long time, my husband's inner world was sending him intense and overwhelming cues of not safe because of what was happening 
related to his neuroimmune crisis. Understanding this, that regulated connected husbands who feel safe, do well, really almost certainly saved our marriage, but it was still an absolute nightmare. I remember thinking at some point that one day I would, of course, have to use our experience to help families who are impacted by neuroimmune disorders, pans and pandas, Lyme and toxic mold, right? So this podcast series is my first offering. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Kazi Javid, an integrative psychiatrist in Austin, Texas, who serves on the Governor's Advisory Council for Pants. Dr. Javid was a colleague when I lived in Austin, and we often shared patients, a brilliantly talented integrative psychiatrist. But this was actually the first time I'd had the opportunity to really talk to him in depth. Y'all, this is a powerful interview. Dr. Javid is compassionate and wise and thoughtful. And just being with him for the hour that I had the opportunity to, to connect with him over Zoom was powerful. So that's the first episode in this three episode series. Next week, you'll get to meet my dear husband. He's agreed to come on and give you a bit of a peek inside the mind and body of someone who feels completely out of control of both. Regardless of the origins of your child's baffling behaviors, I think you'll find new understanding and hope. Hearing from someone who might actually be a lot like your kids, just with much more ability to articulate the jumbly, awful, confusing, trapped experience of having an extremely dysregulated nervous system. So that'll be next week. Then the week after that, I'll be back offering you a glimpse into my own personal experience to be the caregiver for, to love someone, to be unwilling to leave someone in a serious neuroimmune crisis. Again, even if your child's baffling behaviors come from a different nervous system vulnerability, I'm hoping you'll feel seen in my attempts to articulate what a wild and at times traumatic experience this has been, not just for my husband, but also for me. So my hope for this series really is twofold. One, to just introduce you to the concept of neuroimmune disorders, to especially to families who haven't yet heard of this or had the opportunity to really explore it. Because you are listening Neuroimmune disorders have symptoms that look like severe behavior problems and mental illness, and they aren't getting diagnosed correctly, and therefore they aren't getting treated correctly. I hope this series brings awareness to families and kids who deserve to be assessed for a neuroimmune disorder. Second, I want this series to bring a moment of feeling seen and known for everybody listening. Whether your child has a neuroimmune disorder or some other cause for their baffling behavior, I know you are lonely and overwhelmed and you cannot find the help that you need. We discussed all of this two weeks ago in my episode on when parenting is traumatic. So in this series, it is my hope that you can feel that you are not alone. And I want you to know that Yes, sometimes it is super hard to find. There is hope and there is help. 
All righty, y'all. Let's get started with this series, shall we? Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's me, Robin. We're on the Parenting After Trauma podcast. And today I am bringing a guest to you, Dr. Kazi Javid, who has a medical practice um, in Austin, Texas. I'm going to let Dr. Javid tell you all about him and the work that he's doing. I've had that. This is actually my first time speaking directly to Dr. Javid. But when we were both living and practicing in Austin, we had the opportunity to share some clients. Um, I've just, I've known of the work that he is doing for many, many, many years, have so much respect for, for what he's doing and how he is practicing medicine with such a vulnerable, um, just a vulnerable community, people who need really good medical care. And so I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much for agreeing to take this time out of your very busy day and schedule. Um, to connect with me on the podcast and also just to connect with everybody listening. So welcome, Dr. Javid. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm excited to dive in, but I do want everybody listening just to have some context about like who you are, how you practice, your area of expertise. And so if you want to just give us a little background about that, I would love that. Of course. Of course. Um, um so the so I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a board certified adult psychiatrist and a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So I see both communities um, of these of these people. Um, I'm so I basically started off with um, my psychiatry residency and then did my child psychiatry specialization, um, and after that I. Um, also was fairly drawn to psychotherapy mm-hmm. and um and so this in my mind there was this mind body kind of uh, kind of a thing that i think all of us it was a continuum or a combination that all of us existed on and um you know the way that psychiatry um is being practiced in a lot of areas of our country uh, for whatever reasons, is very biological based, and uh, I wanted to include something more in it. Um, so, um, you know, I trained in I trained in uh, herbal medicine. I trained in functional medicine. Um, so I I started doing some of the root cause analysis of why people get uh, sick, why people get yeah. ill, um, and then along with that, you know, I've always had a big interest in psychotherapy, and then um spirituality and some of those things as well i've yes. started doing a little bit work in that um and then i think over a period of time i realized that it's not the medicine that we give people when they are in difficulty we are the medicine right so so there needs to be certain work that needs to be done on ourselves as practitioners um and that just enables us to be a conduit for for healing to pass through 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 us right so if healing is going around looking for looking for the next person to go to then you know it will go to someone who has already experienced it so it'll go through that so Um, so, uh, you know, I started doing that and then sure enough, I ended up in, um, uh, working in some of the, 
some of the psychedelic spaces as well. Yes. Um, uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy or yes. some of the non-ordinary states of consciousness. So, so I've been doing a lot of things, whatever catches my fancy. Hey, y'all, I'm interrupting the show super briefly. I want to make sure you've heard about the Families Rising Conference. Families Rising was is formerly NACAC. So maybe you've been to the NACAC conference. You don't know that they're now Families Rising. So Families Rising is the formerly NACAC conference. It is one of my absolute most favorite conferences because of the super amazing people who attend. Everyone has this like shared mission for helping our most vulnerable kids and improving child welfare practices, listening to the voices of those with the lived experience. And I'm so, 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 so honored to be keynoting this year's conference. This conference is offered virtually every other year, which increases accessibility and people's ability to attend, especially affordably. And it is this year that it's virtual. So you can attend this conference from anywhere. Head to robingobel.com slash families rising to get all the details and send me a message if you're planning to attend. All right, back to the episode. Yes. I mean, I've just always had such gratitude and appreciation for finding a colleague who, one, is like willing to work with some of these, you know, exceptionally complicated and complex cases, um, such as, you know, what would cross my door in Austin. And I'm sure this is true for you too, you know, so often not the family's first professional and sometimes not even the fourth or the fifth, right? They've worked so hard to find somebody who can see them, who can help somebody who have the patience even to like really see all of them. And I think for in in my specific field, I think professionals having the patience in themselves to work with a family or a client when they really weren't sure what was happening, right? I think it takes a lot of guts and a lot of bravery to say like, gosh, I'm really not sure what's happening with you or with your family or with your child. And I will stick with you while we explore this together. Yes, yes. Uh, One thing is for sure that there is this ease going on, right? Yes. So, yes, so much. And... To find a psychiatrist and to be so lucky that you were there in Austin who approached, you know, working with kids and families in in a similar way with so much curiosity and with so much curiosity at like finding, if possible, like the root cause. Um, Because, again, I'm sure you know this, right? Like these, these families who are on their fourth, fifth, sixth professional, there's been lots of lots of what I would call kind of band-aids, like lots of let's try to fix the symptom, but but not enough looking at like, but what's causing these symptoms? Um, so I've just had so much gratitude for you and the work that you do and in the mutual clients we've shared and um, the, the respect for the clients and for what's happening with them. 
Um, and then I've come to see, you know, so I moved away from Austin three years ago and continue to just stay aware of what you're doing. And that at one time you, you became involved in, and tell me, cause I'm not going to get it right, but the governor appointed you something that had to do with pans, pandas, neuromians. So tell me about that and, and how that came to be. Yes. So, uh, by the way, thank you for all those kind words. I, I mean, you know, a lot of them are probably exaggerations, but, but thank you for, for the sentiment. Um, the, I, so, you know, um, so pans pandas is something that I started seeing a lot of children and families struggling with. Um, and, um, you know, there's, it's so pans, if you, you might, it's a neuroimmune condition, um, in which it's, uh, it's an acute onset neurological symptoms that happen in a child or, or, or sometimes an adult. And they usually happen secondary to immune system involvement. Um, and if the immune system is involved, secondary to infections or other other reasons um, can also can also cause it. But um, but this is an area of uh, exploration, um, an area that is actively being researched. So there's not a lot of clinicians who know what it is all about. I mean, we got hypertension, right? Like if somebody has hypertension, we know what it is. We know how to treat it. We know the numbers. We know the data of long-term kind of things that happen if hypertension is not controlled, what kind of things we can do. Lots of data. So when somebody walks in with, with hypertension, um, a cardiologist or a primary care physician, they know exactly how to treat that. Um, when somebody with a neurological, an acute onset neurological uh, symptom walks in that is actually not only a neurological symptom, but is just this combination of neurological, mental health, psychiatric, and physical, other physical symptoms. Uh, there's no cookbook kind of uh, data that we have available. So uh, that's a time that is very, um, it's, it's, it's tricky, um, meaning if at that time, you know, the clinician who is seeing that family has 10 minutes, 10 minutes is not enough time to be creative. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll fit things onto the, onto the, onto the symptoms and, and get people out. So, so a recent study, actually, like neurological, like PANS kids, um, they had to see about 12 providers mm. before they actually got diagnosed. Right. Yeah. So, it's um, and each each passing day is a day that is like a day in my life. It might not be as valuable as a day in the life of a child, right? A year in my life might not be as valuable as a day or a week in the week of a child. They're learning and developing so quickly. Yes. So any delay in in recognition, any delay in management treatment, it it, it matters. Yes. So, so anyway, so I I got I got appointed on the um, you know the governor's uh, council for pans and pandas. They're trying to they got some of the uh, some clinicians together from around the state who have experience working with some of this. And um, so I I formed the psychiatry part of it um, and the mental health part of it. 
we have a neurologist in the team and an immunologist, hopefully, and pediatrician. And um, um, so, so there's, it's a multidisciplinary kind of a, kind of a team that gives recommendations to the governor about how to approach this as a public health crisis. Yes. So, as you know, the vast majority of the families that I work with are parenting kids with histories of trauma. And there's this way that when your child has a history of trauma and we see this, you know, significant nervous system vulnerability and these really serious, scary, confusing, overwhelming behaviors that, you know, we've made so much progress in seeing these behaviors as a, um, I say, like what we see on the outside that lets us know a little bit about what's happening on the inside. Yes. Yes. And I also am seeing, and as I've learned more and more, you know, as, as, as I was winding down my career in Austin, so that was three years, it was probably just maybe two or three years ahead of that where I was starting to hear words like pans and pandas and neuroimmune. And so knowing it was a thing and knowing, knowing to ask, for example, has your child had a recent, um, you know, recent case of strept, right? Like I started to become more aware of that. And maybe even before we go on, maybe even if you want to say like why, why I would even be asking that. I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called Start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and that I want you to listen to in this specific order. And I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingobel.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe. And then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now. RobinGobel.com slash start here. Oh, yes. So you're, you're, you're right. So, um, you know, our immune system can be set off by several things. Yeah. You know, infections is one of them. Yep. So whenever our immune system is set off with infections, um, there's all sorts of changes that can happen in a, in a body or, in an immune system that is not robust, that means that is not regulated to know when to start, when to stop, and how much to how much to attack, right? Yes. So um, that dysregulation in the immune system is um, um, is is something that can cause 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 difficulties. So infection is one. So streptococcal infections. These this is one of the earliest. Um, documented case reports that they started seeing in rheumatic fever um, that post-streptococcal infections, people had heart problems and subsequent heart failures. And similarly, they had um, movement disorders, neurological symptoms, and onset of obsessive compulsive disorder and tics. So they they started calling it 
pediatric autoimmune neurological disorder associated with streptococcal infection, PANDAS. Yeah. Um, So, so yes, to your point, that's... So somewhat for my own education, but also just for everybody listening. So, so pandas is maybe considered like a, a subset of pans. And then there's also these other causes, you know, like, like Lyme and toxic mold exposure. Would you call, would you still say, even if the, the origin was, was a Lyme disease, for example, would you still call that a, a pans from a big picture perspective? Yeah. I would, I would call it um, neuroimmune. Neuroimmune. Yes. Okay. And that might be um, because because of this. I mean, this term "pans" has become very polarized, right? Yes. Like um, it has split the medical community into people who believe in it or don't believe in it. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes just that wording by itself becomes a barrier to to healing, to yeah. access of care. Um, you know, if if like if somebody goes over and you know, and this happens so often, right? Like um, that there's a, you know, a child develops these problems and a friend whose child also had this problem, they will tell the parent, you know, check out this Facebook group, right? Like the PANS or PANDAS Facebook group. And they go over there, somebody over says, well, you know, you got to take it. This is PANS, PANDAS classic. You got to take you to take, take your child to the pediatrician. You walk into the pediatrician and you say, my child has PANS or PANDAS. Uh-huh. Depending on the history, because the practitioners they have they don't know what what all this is about. The academia has not backed up, um, you know, um, algorithms of what what to do, um, and it's a it's an entity that is questioned. So, yeah. you know, there'll be the practitioner will respond in a certain way based on their experiences, and and that can that can that can certainly hurt, but. If somebody goes and just describes symptoms, right, um, and neuroimmune is a slightly more is a term that some people will expect. Um, they can work it up. They can refer to a rheumatologist. They can refer to, um, you know, an immunologist if needed. Or so. So there is this thing. You people can call it whatever, but there's this thing for which we have. We have no cure right now. We right. we're trying to figure out. So there's these all these different causes or etiologies, and then ultimately, what we're seeing are these neuroimmune conditions that are then causing these symptoms. And so, to then to kind of circle back, so what I'd started saying before is, you know, I I, I have a you know have a practice, and I work with families is full of kids who like the language I've started using. People. Have Seem to really resonate with are these vulnerable nervous systems and baffling behaviors. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, and and then then we've done such a great job of helping people start to understand, especially relational trauma and how that really can impact the developing nervous system and is you know related to these baffling behaviors that are leaving parents just so confused, so overwhelmed. Like, what what even is happening to me? And that's amazing. We've done so, gotten, there's so much progress happening there. And I'm also starting to see experiences where we're getting too tunnel visioned there. 
where we're putting it all on this relational trauma has relational healing. And for so many of the parents, which, which it absolutely does relational, the relationship is involved in all healing. But what I've come to see are parents who are like, well, my kid's not getting better. That must mean this is my fault. Somehow I'm not providing them with the relational experience that they need. I'm not giving them the felt safety. This is all my fault. And we're really overlooking for just so many things. Like there's so many things that can be happening for kids inside their body that are disrupting the state of their nervous system. And sure, we always need to pair that with, you know, good relational healing and relational experiences. But when we're overlooking these other, you know, possibilities that like we're like a neuroimmune disorder needs more than really great parenting, for example, like one, we're leaving kids without the care they need. And two, we're leaving parents feeling like complete failures. Like, well, they told me it was my job to, you know, be the relational experience that my kid needed. And then they would, their relational trauma would heal, but my kid isn't getting better. And so we're leaving families just, just stuck with kind of no explanation for what's happening or no way out. And so I think a, like, you know, one, one of my objectives for talking to you today, one was just like introduce this concept to families. Cause I know there's people listening that are like, well, I've never even heard of this before. Um, and then the second objective was, are there anything that would anything, is there anything that would come to mind for you? And there's some things that maybe would come to mind for me that are good markers for families to be like, you know what, something's really missing here. And like the overall assessment of what's happening with my child. And it's time for me to get help outside my therapist's office or even outside just my psychiatrist's office. It's time for me to really start trying to find answers from somewhere else. Like what, what maybe would be some of those things, especially for parents who do, their kids have a history of relational trauma. So it's like, everybody's like, well, this is because of their trauma. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a very, very, very great question, but like so layered, so normal. Yeah. Um, because on one hand, so, you know, and study, right? Like, um, you know, immunoglobulins are like one of the things that fight off illnesses, right? Uh-huh. So there's actually, I mean, study, right? Like you can measure immunoglobulins in your saliva and uh, you can tell how how stressed you are so if like people are shown videos of people screaming at either each other or any violent kind of an infraction of interpersonal relationship or any traumatic kind of an image, it increases your uh, immunoglobulin level that's increased in the saliva, right? Mm-hmm. Your system becomes active the minute that you have observed this. Yes. Right. So how is your immune system reacting in general? Um in general, the best kind of healing that an immune system can do to itself is when is in stillness. Yes. You know, that's why our inner healing kind of intelligence asks us to be still when we are sick. When we are in pain, we are still. When we are sick, we are still. We are lie down, right? We don't move around. Yes. Yes. So in stillness, the immune system also can perform at its optimal. Mm-hmm. And that stillness can be can be taken as 
stillness in the physical sense or stillness in the energetic sense or stillness as um, in a psychological sense. Like, you know, so the parasympathetic tone is the optimal condition for the body to heal itself. Yes. Right. So, uh, so for example, right, like all immune system conditions, right, they are the the one medicine that really, really helps a lot of people is steroids. Mm -hmm. Steroids are nothing but the stress hormone that our body produces during stress. Mm -hmm. So now if you think about trauma, stress, illness, steroids, right? Like that is the one biggest medicine that we have in medicine, all the medicine. Yes. So you see how trauma kind of plays a role in in creating some of the optimal conditions for. So it's so your question is like very uh, layered. Um, if a parent feels that they are contributing to the what the child is going through, they will not be in an optimal state for that child to get nurture from from them because we can only nurture in a regulated parasympathetic dominant system. Yes. Yes. So now that is not happening. If they have immune system problems because of infections or whatnot, they're certainly worsened. Um, there's, I don't know the exact cause, um, you know, of of panspandas or neuroimmune conditions or autoimmune conditions or immune system gone, not working correctly. There's mm -hmm. can be a lot of multiple contributing factors. So you try addressing each of those contributing factors as much as you can. Yes. So that trauma work, that interpersonal kind of stuff becomes very important. Along so with regardless of whether this is, you know, a neuroimmune condition or not, the trauma healing and, and the focus, especially, you know, that my listeners I think are familiar with is on this, this relational piece, the felt safety piece, that parasympathetic ventral vagal. My listeners know it as kind of the owl, the owl brain, the owl pathway. In the mm. metaphor that I use, uh, um, can regard again, regardless, can that is that, that remains really key both for the parents and the child. And I think my listeners also would say they're real familiar with me talking so much about their how important it is for us to take care of ourselves and nurture ourselves as the as adults. That that is treating our children when we pay close attention to our own nervous system state. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If we are in that state, we'll be able to be better, we'll be better able to describe and communicate to the pediatrician that we go to about what are the problems that our child is facing. Yes. Right. There's a, there's a, I forget what it is, right? But I'll, it's a Zen proverb or uh, a concept or which says something like that. Um, good anger should be like a lightning strike, right? It It is intense, mm -hmm. focused, and then stops immediately, right? Yes. When it has achieved its purpose. So, so a good immune system should be like that as well. Mm-hmm. A regulated nervous system should be like that as well. Yes. You know, so we are trying to, an immune system should know that there's a bug, went after it, and not done, and let's stop, right? 
let's not continue going on in anger or let's not continue going on in dysregulation or out of balance or yeah yeah so as a practitioner i mean so often folks like me that wear the mental health hat the play therapist hat you know kid has a behavior problem let's see about sending them to therapy and we it, it can be really easy, especially for the referring person, because a lot of times at schools or, or people that just don't understand all the nuances, you know, behavior problem, go to therapy. And I think as mental health practitioners, and I know lots of folks listen, having some thoughts or, or just ideas about when do I need to make sure there's another like professional involved in this? Like when, like this, sure, this is a behavior problem. But what's the origins of this behavior problem? And do we need something more than play therapy? Like, do I need, do I need a medical assessment or an occupational therapist assessment? A lot of my kids, you know, really would benefit from occupational therapist assessment. And then, well, and here's, of course, the big kicker is where do we get that from? You know, if I suspect, or even if I happen to know that there is a history of mold exposure or, you know, just something that lends me to suggest like, maybe there is something neuroimmune here going on. Um, and I tend to kind of get to a point where it's like, if I've worked with a family long enough and, you know, it, everything in the system feels quote unquote good enough, like in, you know, mental health where it's like, I've got good enough parents here. They're, they're really working hard. They're working on themselves. They're offering lots of health safety. This kid has lots of services, but they're still just so dysregulated. That's when I start to say, like, you know, I think we really need now to get another lens, another look. Because if we keep thinking this is all about, you know, how the adults are providing felt safety or we need to, you know, these parent your parenting skills, but we're missing this other thing about what's happening in their brain, like we're all just gonna continue to anguish here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 we just increase our level of awareness, right? Like if something is not working, then we increase our level of awareness and we address the next thing and level. Yeah. But most often the medical piece usually presents as, um, you know, obsessive compulsive um, problems. Yes. And because of those obsessions and compulsions, there's complete dysregulation that happens yeah. because of inability to adapt to any changes. Yeah. So, um, and that can present as so many things, neurological kind of things can start happening, right? Like bedwetting is a, is a common one. Sleep problems is another one. Um, some people actually go into, uh, anorexia, meaning they stop eating because they become so obsessed and rigid and yeah. fears, some very, very bizarre fears start happening <clears throat> in which, I mean, some very strange ones, right? Like, so like there's like a child might suddenly you know start worrying that they heard their mother cough so now for the next 3 nights they're not going to go to sleep because they have to make sure that the mother does not die yes that level of irrationality sometimes in their anxiety right it's like yeah. the complete um a lot of anxieties can happen, um, like severe anxieties, they can happen. Handwritings and neurological kind of development that regresses sometimes, right? Like people can't, you see their handwriting 
before or after you know it's it's significant market um so a number a number of a number of things uh, medical things can show up um along with some very bizarre behaviors a few people um there's a subset that can have hallucinations even mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, yeah and i know it can feel there's this idea of almost like acute onset i'm curious your thoughts on like maybe there was something that would have looked like an acute sudden onset like years ago but the family and the professionals involved and everybody just called it well this is part of their trauma and so it doesn't really feel like acute onset anymore like if it doesn't feel sudden but if we got really curious you know if we really looked at when the you know the the symptoms really flared it does have a little bit of a sudden onset look to it would you say that that's at, like another way to kind of look at this idea of like sudden onset totally yeah totally um okay so, so there's um you know for some people it can be it can be one episode that's very sudden and that can take a very long time to slowly go away um for some people it's it's uh almost relapsing remitting right so yeah yes relapse and things recover and then there's another relapse and yeah so this question of sudden onset change in personality becomes a little bit of a problem um when let's say there's a child who is who at age 2 has suddenly regressed but it's too difficult to see the regression right like the child cries and that's the only thing that the child does and then after 4 5 6 months maybe things are starting to get better if around that time there's trauma also in the family system and the environment system and the you know the geopolitical or the social system right like yes. um then that 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 will tend to be put in our blind spot so there are a lot of blind spots that we can have towards flares or towards relapses so oftentimes it becomes a little bit of a chronic kind of a thing because of so many relapses yes and that changes into i mean for some people that changes into the definition of you know like state trait preference personality and then you know um so it becomes a part of the personality yes uh, it's yeah yeah i was as you were just saying that yeah like i just had this moment of the like the gravity of it the gravity i mean and yeah just as you were saying that just really touched into it in that moment so for a family especially a family that doesn't live somewhere like Austin Texas which has a lot of providers and i think having lived other places in Austin Texas a lot of providers who are willing to kind of be progressive um and think about things in new ways um if a family listening is like wondering you know maybe this is something i need to check out for my child where where do they even start it's uh it's 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 difficult um you know because because the conventional medical model is not extremely geared to providing help for 
the the the, the family, right? Yeah. Evaluation on a larger scope. So I think the biggest, the first place that it starts off is with the child. Is the child healthy? What is going on? So the pediatrician needs to be involved, right? Yes. There are a lot of resources for, and some of my family members, they give resources to the pediatricians um, to study up a little bit on on, mm-hmm. on this. If, for example, they have questions. So there's a way to be, to, to not trigger the the pediatrician or and you know trigger the their defenses to 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 yeah. cause them to get overwhelmed um, and yet at the same time so for example um it's called pandas physician network they have an extensive uh, resources for clinicians to what to do when they f- see the first child with pans or pandas like you know mm-hmm. so there's that um and then the biggest thing is like collaboration between the pediatrician or the primary care physician and the other team members, like, for example, a mental health person, like a psychiatrist or um, another person like um, a neurologist, especially if neurological symptoms are present. If a developmental pediatrician needs to be involved, then, then you know, having the having that person pulled in, if an immunologist needs to be involved or a rheumatologist needs to be involved, or, then, you know, how do you create it? team and among that in that part of that team is like a therapist right like part of that team is for the parents of the child who have to who have to heal as well yes i mean the child is you know and i've seen this again and again people neglect themselves to take care of their child which is what any parent would do mm mm-hmm. But at the, at a, at a certain point, then it becomes counterproductive, right? You know, so so there there's this village that needs to be formed around around a child that is struggling, you know, in anything, let alone neuroimmune kind of stuff, right? Like, but and this village needs to be needs to be coordinated. They need to be able to have a conversation with each other. There needs to be collaboration, and it is it is something that is our our conventional medical model is not very conducive for this. Um, you know, um, all like physicians, nurse practitioners, therapists, all people who provide uh, care, um, you know, they're, they're, they're overworked. Um, they have difficulty taking care of themselves. They have difficulty being curious or being in the beginner's mind. They have difficulty meeting people where they are. They have difficulty communicating to other people and not feeling isolated. They have difficulty with other the the people that come to them, right? Like the patients, the children. Uh, they get similar kind of um, passing on of this dissociated trauma that people are going through, right? So now they have it. They don't neglect. They neglect themselves, and they're trying to take care of a child, and they forget themselves. And then, so it's a it's a it's a it's a village approach that that works best. Yes, I think that's will just be so validating for folks to hear because when we're when we find ourselves doing things that look a little bit outside the norm, there can be this feeling of like I must be doing something terribly wrong. Um, so I think to just really for everyone listening to hear that, like this is a very complex medical issue that and complex medical issues require complex you know, approaches. And that is going to involve more than just 
a trip to the pediatrician's office, that there will be other practitioners involved. And it's going to depend on the, you know, the uniqueness of this specific situation. Um, So many parents, I know, I'm sure this is true for you too, that they are the ones who end up kind of playing this like case manager role, right? The role of somebody who's trying to put all these different pieces together into just one cohesive, you know, understanding of their child and, and treatment planning. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, you know, some of the, I mean, it is amazing and so inspiring, right? Like I when know. you see a parent who has not had any medical training, who's pulling up research article after research article and, and, and they have like all of this stuff that they've done and they're literally running the, I mean, they've taken over the care, right? That's, yeah. it's great. It's inspiring, but they have to, either they're that or they're a parent who enjoys their child as well, right? Like yes. there has to be that, yeah, there has to be a balance there as well. Yeah, it's so awesome to even just hear you recognize that. I talk a lot about it with parents. It's like, there's there's just so much grief underneath all of this. And the the just like you mentioned, this like, am I my child's case manager? Am I managing their care? Or am I a parent who's delighting in my child and you know, and all the losses? And when we look to it at other families that we might call more neurotypical and see what their lives look like and how that can, you know, just really compound this sense of isolation and and loneliness and becomes traumatic for the parents them, themselves. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very traumatizing illness. Yes. Yes. In so many different ways, not to mention the idea that we're going to 12 practitioners before finally, you know, like when I have my therapist head on, I think how the devastation of being so unseen for so long. That is so beautifully said. Yeah. Unseen and then seen in a judgmental light. Yes. Yeah. The chronicity of the mis like being misunderstood, not seen. And even I even to hear you talk about professional, you know, or parents who come in with their journal articles. And I know that even that can get judged in the professional community of totally. You know, yeah. Totally. It's so easy to, yeah. Totally. And and that is one of those things that we need, that we need therapists who can who can work with families on how to approach these systems of care. Yeah. Right. And so a therapist that is well versed in trauma or because if you if you think about it, right, like the biggest challenge that a traumatized person experiences is the inability to communicate their pain. They either yes. shout, right? And yes. people stop hearing them because they're shouting from pain. Mm-hmm. Or they don't talk about it and they can't talk about it because they're dissociated. Right. So same thing, right? Like when a traumatized person, and you know, you we could take it not only from neuroimmune conditions, but even in general, right? Like when I go to my physician and I try to communicate things and I'm in pain, right? My communication will be off. Yes. Yes. Mm. So it's a yeah. I'm 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 really grateful that you're bringing in such you know layers to the to this to this to this problem. It is a very nuanced kind of thing. 
it is really nuanced. And I, I think I find myself in the, in the middle of these families that are already like moment to moment, right? Like their lives are just so full of chaos. And you expect them then to be reading medical journals and, and then to communicate in a regulated way right? That like, of course, they're going into their health providers and acting in ways that we could easily judge. Like, of course, they're behaving that way. I mean, we've essentially backed them all into this proverbial corner and we've got, you know, just hurting, hurting people. Um, and as I've learned so much more about these, these neuroimmune conditions and how devastating they are to the person to feel so out of control of your own body and experience and behaviors is another layer of trauma for the person who's experiencing these conditions absolutely that is so that is so well said absolutely it is it is it is very i mean you know, one of the things with trauma is the is our is our lack of ability to trust our own protective mechanisms. Yes, because it sets up, sets us up for more trauma. Yes, right. And if I cannot do something in this world, or if I don't have the ability or control over my faculties, over my body, over my over making something, achieving something, then I'll be a sitting duck to more trauma, right? So that safety is absolutely not there. Yeah. Well, this has just been a lovely afternoon for me, a lovely conversation. Um, I just the the opportunity, I love podcasting for so many reasons. It gets me the opportunity to chat with really neat people that we otherwise might not carve this time out for. So I'm so grateful for that. And then also to think about all the people who are gonna get to to listen and hear this. And it, my number one goal with podcasting is, you know, can I give people little micro moments of being seen? You know, like what, how has this conversation helped somebody experience? Like, I, I'm not the crazy one here. Like I hear people say that all the time and I try not to use the word crazy. Um, but that's what people are saying, right? Like, Oh, I'm not the crazy one here. Like what I'm feeling other people are talking about it. That must mean, you know, it, there's language we can put to it. I'm not alone. I'm not making that up. And I think that that is so powerful. Um, and so just so thank you for being with me here today and, um, you know, giving folks, you know, folks who don't have access to other resources. Like for some people, this is what they have is listening to this podcast every week. Um, and I believe in the power of that, the power of these just like little moments where people can feel just seen and not alone. And mm -hmm. also to know that there are professionals out there who work our tails off to make progress. And I have had people tell me that just that matters to them. Like, I can't find anybody to help me, but just knowing that there are people out there like you who are doing this really hard, hard work, like how that kind of lands in their nervous system. And I really believe that matters and is powerful. So thank you for being one of those people um, who's doing hard work for people who need help. So thank you. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, well, I, I, I also enjoyed our conversation a lot. And I really liked what you said about micro moments, right? Like, yeah, that was not the word that you used. You used, what, what did you say? I think I did maybe say micro moments. I'm a little, uh, amazing yeah. word, yeah. micro moment. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for creating those micro moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an honor. And so again, thanks for your time. I know you're so busy. I just appreciate it so, so much. And I will let folks know, like in the podcast stuff, everybody listening, you know, you can go to the show notes, you can go to my website to see and learn more. Well, I'll put some like just neuroimmune resources into this week's show notes, but also um, we'll let people know where they can learn more um, about your practice and the work, the work that you're doing, because it's, it's really remarkable. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It was very nice to be here, Robin. Thanks. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash beingwith, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors 
paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website, download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now. And I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.